and welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me for conversations with fearless leaders from around the world as we discuss the mechanics of high performance, success and failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversations ahead, I hope to challenge, inform, and inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance and to learn to focus on what you can control and to go further faster. And that message starts right now. Today, we are talking with my great friend, Allison Levine. She's had a career on Wall Street. She served as a team captain of the first American women's Everest expedition, and she's climbed the highest peak on every continent, completing the Adventure Grand Slam, which is climbing all seven peaks on each continent. And she's also skied to both poles, north and south. She happens to be a New York Times bestselling author of On the Edge, The Art of High Impact Leadership. Allison, hello, and welcome to my office. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my honor to be here with you today. Oh, I am so excited to see your face. It feels like forever. It does feel like forever, but I'm excited to see your face too. And I honestly just have to say that I'm so, so excited to be here with you today because if there's one person I turn to when I need advice, when I'm in a sticky situation, it is going to be you. So that's why I just feel like you've, you've inspired me over the years. You've motivated me to push myself. And it's just really such an incredible honor to be here with you. Oh my gosh. You can send, put the check in the mail whenever it's convenient. I know. Checks in the mail, fam. Hey, Allison, <laughs> you and I have known each other for, I had to do the math on this, I think almost about 15 years now. And our conversations are always all over the map from world politics to dogs to traveling, uh, our dreams for the future previous to, you know, really the last year, uh, our flight delays. Um, but what I'd like to do today, and just for, you know, for those of you who've tuned in, I just want you to, to think about this as a conversation. So whether you're just, you know, pouring yourself a cup of coffee or you just strapped on your shoes and you're going to go out for a run, or maybe you're just sitting outside getting a breath of fresh air. What I'd like to do is kind of welcome you into my office, but also into Allison's as well, and dig into the mechanics of high performance of success and failure. And again, what it does take to reach really peak performance. Allison, for those of you who are unfamiliar with your work, you are, and this is going to be a little bit of a, a professional fangirl, if you will. You're not only an amazing person uh, and an even better friend, but you have an incredible background that honestly, I would really be surprised, shocked, if you will, if at some point, Netflix doesn't turn your life into a series. So, and I'm not kidding. Like you are one of the most fascinating people I know. But for those for those people who are listening- Now I'll be sending you a check in the mail. <laughs> for those people who aren't really familiar with your background though, imagine for a second, we're sitting on a plane together, uh, only we're separated by a couple of rows. And somebody asks you, so what do you do? Where does a person like you even begin? Well- <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. All right. So as you know, I'm very passionate about the topic of leadership and how do you get people? How do you motivate people to achieve more than they ever thought possible? And there's so many different ways to do that. But I hope that by sharing my story with people, that it will inspire them to push themselves a little bit harder to 
go a little bit further and to be less afraid of taking risks and less afraid of failure. So mostly I work as a keynote speaker, as you know, because we're both on the road or pre-COVID, we're on the road all the time. Um, But I also teach on the faculty of the Thayer Leadership Group at West Point, which is an executive education program that uh, shares West Point leadership best practices with corporate executives. So it's I, I focus on the topic of leading teams in extreme environments. So that's what I do. I share my message, whether it's on stage at West Point, you know, through my book or through social media, which isn't very often, I'll admit. But um, <laughs> but that's what I do. And it all is based on the lessons I learned while climbing the world's highest peaks, as you mentioned, the seven summits, and skiing to both the North and the South Pole. Because because I've spent so much time in these remote extreme environments, I've learned so many incredible lessons on leadership, dealing with a changing environment and overcoming obstacles. I've learned lessons in those environments that I could not learn in a, a traditional classroom or in, you know, in at my desk in corporate America. Okay. This is where I'm going to throw in a Yes, and because there might be somebody out there who's like, okay, so she's a mountain climber, right? So, like, so what? There are tons of people who have been mountain climbers, but not only that, that that's only part of your story. You have a lot of chapters that led up to you getting to that point, and then also after that point. Okay, so I'll take you back a little bit here. I'll take everybody back a bit. I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. And when I was younger, I was always obsessed with the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers, the early mountaineers. And I would read these books and I would watch documentary films about these people going to these remote cold places. I think because it was an escape. It felt like an escape from the oppressive summer heat in Phoenix. So I'd read books about cold places and watch documentaries, but I never thought I would go to those places because I had some health struggles growing up. I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. I wasn't diagnosed until I was 17 because I grew up in a very tough love family, no whining, no complaining. So whenever I would have problems breathing or felt a lot of pressure on my chest, I would say, you know, I feel like there's an elephant sitting on my chest, mom. I can't, I can't really breathe. And she would say, oh, you're fine. You're probably just nervous for your piano recital. And I would say, mom, no, I don't, I don't think that's it. And she would say, well, how can you be sure? I'm like, because I don't even take piano lessons. Like (laughs) I played the guitar and it was my brother that took piano lessons. So you've heard of these, you know, helicopter parents that hover over their kids. I feel like I had space shuttle parents where they were, they of course cared about us, you know, loved their kids, but they weren't really paying too much attention to what was going on in our lives. So I didn't get diagnosed with my a hole in my heart until I was 17 years old when I, I lost consciousness and the, the friends I was with had the good sense to rush me to the emergency room where I was diagnosed with this life-threatening heart condition. So I had my first surgery when I was 17. Unfortunately, it was not successful. I had another one I when I turned 30. And at that point, this light bulb went on in my head. It was this total light bulb moment where I thought, okay, hang on. 
if I want to know what it's like to be this explorer, Reinhold Messner, and drag a 150-pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should go drag that damn sled across the ice instead of just reading about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers and these remote mountaineers going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the remote mountains instead of just watching films about them. And if these other guys can do this stuff, why can't I do it too? So I climbed my first mountain when I was 32 years old. So I'm 55 now and I've been climbing ever since. Wow. Well, okay. So what did you do from 20 to 30 though that set the stage for that? From 20 to 30, I was basically working. You know, I graduated from college a little bit early, graduated from university after University of Arizona after three years. And I went to work in telecom. I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. I had worked in the medical device industry. I had a lot of different jobs. And then I decided that I needed to go back to grad school because I still had this passion for adventure. And I wanted to start an adventure travel company, but I didn't have any formal education or background in finance or accounting and a lot of the the quantitative skills that are that are required to be successful in business. So I thought if I want to learn these skills, then I should go back to school, maybe go back to business school. So I applied to business school. I got into business school at Duke, but I quit my job two months before I started business school. And that's when I went to my first mountain. I went to Mount Kilimanjaro. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have been to that mountain. It's not a technical mountain. Anybody can go do it if you have you know, the, the motivation to do it and you have the stamina. So you don't need any special training or any special equipment. But I went to Kilimanjaro by myself. I found a local guide at the base of the mountain. I think I paid him about $200. That was the going rate at the time. And I hired a local guide importers to take me up that mountain. And while it wasn't a difficult mountain, I'll tell you why that climb was life-changing for me. It was the first time I ever felt like I was going to quit. It was summit day, the wind was blowing, I was feeling the altitude, I felt like someone had punched me in the stomach, I felt like I was going to puke, I had a banging headache, and I thought, I cannot do this, I'm going to have to go down, but before I go down, I'm just going to take a couple more steps, and then I'm going to turn around, so I took a couple of steps, and then I thought, okay, well, I'm definitely going to turn around, because I know I can't do this, but before I do, I'm just going to take a couple more steps, and I took couple more steps. All right, I'm just going to walk over to that rock and see what the view is like over there because I know I'm going to turn around, but before I do, just just a few more steps. Well, I kept doing that and eventually I found myself on the summit of Kilimanjaro. And it was a light bulb moment for me because I realized that the way you get to the top of any mountain is you just put one foot in front of the other. And you don't need to worry about being the fastest or being the strongest or being the best. You just have to be the most relentless. That is how you get to the top of every mountain. And that lesson I learned on Kilimanjaro, that first mountain, is what got me to the top of every mountain I climbed after that. Just remembering, like, every time I felt slow or weak or felt sick or just felt like I was losing my confidence, I don't know if I'm going to be good enough. I don't know if I'm going to be fast enough. Just reminding myself, I don't have to be the best. I don't have to be the fastest. I just have to be relentless. You know, I think that's such great insight. And when I hear you talking about that, so that's that's your first attempt, your first success that was really challenging. And yet you went on 
to go into even more demanding, more extreme environments. And I think one of the things that I find really fascinating about you and about others who have pushed themselves to really extreme limits, whether whether that be in business or from an athletic perspective, one of the traits I think that we, as in you and I, and either and even other higher performers or people who go to extremes have in common is that we both or we all keep pushing forward even when it hurts. But in order to be able to replicate that or go bigger, go better, go faster, go stronger, it's also this delicate balance between managing risk and preparation. And help me understand when you got to the top of, of Mount Kilimanjaro and you were full of pain, feeling sweaty, feeling sick, but also feeling like I did it. What did you also realize about what you maybe didn't do and what you should have done from a preparation perspective? Because everybody wants to get to the top of the mountain, right? Everybody wants to be a fighter pilot. Everybody wants something better. But when you tell them what it actually takes, what that gritty, dirty, hard, isolating work is to get yourself in a position to even be able to attempt it, what does that look like? I'm, I'm going to switch over for a second to Everest because for Kilimanjaro, you don't really have to prepare for that mountain. And you literally can just show up and put one foot in front of the other and you're good to go. Now, most situations, most mountains are not like that. And I will tell you on Mount Everest, especially as the team captain for the first American women's Everest expedition, we, we, this was back in 2002. We did not summit. We got to within just a couple hundred feet of the top and we had to turn around in bad weather. And look, there's always these, these uncontrollable things mm-hmm. in the environment mm-hmm. that are going to affect you and, and determine, often determine your success or failure. And of course, you have to accept that, right? Look at you with span of control, right? You talk about that all the time. I love your lessons from span of control. You know, I, I see them on social media all the time. Looking forward to the book as well, of course. But I felt like on Everest, you know, that was Big Mountain. That was something that required a lot of preparation, a lot of planning. Unlike Kilimanjaro, you cannot just show up and find a local at the base of the mountain and ask them to help you get up there, right? There's tons of logistics involved. There's tons of planning. But in addition to the logistics and the planning, you know, sorting the gear, making sure you have the right stuff, the organizational part of that can really stress you out. Because first of all, when you're trying to figure out what to bring on a mountain, you want to be prepared. So you want to have all the necessary gear, equipment, food, fuel, everything you need. But the more stuff you bring, the heavier your pack is going to be or your sled on some of these expeditions mm-hmm. you're dragging, you're, you're carrying a pack and dragging a sled that's harnessed your way. So you, you, you know, sometimes you might think, oh, I'm going to be, oh, you know, I want to be overly prepared. I want to have more than what I need. Well, that's going to work against you on the mountain. You cannot bring any more than what you absolutely need to get you to the top and back down safely. So you have to discard a lot of the creature comforts that you would have maybe on a smaller mountain that, or, you know, things that could stay at base camp. So once you figure out the critical pieces of gear that you need, then you have to do a ton of research, right? Why, for me, I, lo- I looked at Everest and I looked at why were some teams successful and what, 
what tragedies had occurred on the mountain and why did those tragedies occur? And I will tell you that sometimes the, the most experienced, skilled climbers can still experience tragedy on a mountain. We see it, sadly, almost every year. And you hear about these incredibly accomplished climbers that make a mistake and, and unfortunately mm-hmm. can end up, mm-hmm. you know, it can be a, a fatal error. I think when people are listening to this right now, I think, you know, what's important to glean from that and what I hear you saying and and what I feel even from our conversations and and the experiences, and I I know you lost a very dear friend, Meg, uh, climbing as well, which can make it when you suffer uh, a loss like that, it can make it really difficult to go on as well as to even maintain perspective, right? Right. And, And realize that, you know what? Sometimes you can do all of the preparation. Sometimes you can be the best teammate and you've paid attention to detail and you've done everything, air quotes, right. And yet things still don't go your way. Right. So how do you bounce back? And I have an answer in my mind, but what would you say then if I ask you how you bounce back and how do you continue to go on and put that one foot in front of the other? What do you think is the number one trait that you see most high performers exhibit? Okay, so there's a, I, I know you asked me for one, but I want to give you two. Perfect. No charge for the second one. <laughs> um, first of all, that sense of grit, right? Of just knowing mm-hmm. that you can go through something tough and you can keep going. So for me, it's thinking back. Thinking back to that time on Kilimanjaro where I thought I couldn't p- keep going. I thought I was going to have to quit, but I kept going then. So I have this voice in my head that says, look, you did it then so you can do it now. And that voice also says, remember, pain is temporary. Pain and discomfort are temporary. And sometimes it's through the struggle that we really learn and grow. You have to go through pain. You have to go through a struggle sometimes to really experience the growth that you need to propel you forward. So just realizing discomfort is temporary. Discomfort's not going to kill me. Discomfort does not kill you. You can keep going. So that's that's one thing. Another thing is I think back to people I know who have been through incredibly difficult things. Um, so my first cousin once removed, it's my would have been my mom's cousin. My mom passed a couple years ago, as you know, um, and you were there for me. So thank you. But my mom's cousin, his name's Jack Terry. He's 90 years old. He lives in New York. He was a Holocaust survivor. He was the youngest mm-hmm. survivor from the Flossenburg concentration camp. And he survived because when the remaining prisoners were being marched to their death, they were cleaning out the camp because the Americans were coming to liberate the camp. Some other prisoners hid him in a tunnel underneath the barracks and he survived. And when I think about it, he was in that camp for a number of years. And I'm like, my God, like, think about the the will that this guy had. And when I think about my cousin, Jack Terry, what he survived, I'm like, oh my God, cold temperatures, hurricane force winds, this is nothing. So keeping things in perspective, right? Keeping things in perspective, whatever difficult situation you are going through out there, dear listeners, remember there's probably someone else out there going through something tougher. And you know, if you just have that sense of I'm going to get through this, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, that voice is what will get you through that same voice that tells you, oh, you can't do this. You got to quit. No, that is the same voice that will tell you you can 
keep going. You just need to train it to speak to you differently. The last thing that keeps me going is to remember that failure is one thing that happens to you at one point in time. Failure is one thing that happens to you at one point in time. It does not define you. And while you think it might be a big deal at the time, I always say, you know, when I'm thinking, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. I go and I look out my window and I look at all the cars driving by and I think, do any of these people care what I just screwed up on? And no, they don't. Therefore, I think the world's going to keep turning and life will go on. So keep your failures in perspective. Remember, they they never define you. And the other thing that I really want people to remember when it comes to feeling like you can't do something and feeling like maybe it's time to quit or maybe it's time to throw in the towel, just remember you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can. You can be scared and brave at the same time. Absolutely. And there's that balance. And that's, there's, there's one key word in the amazing story that you just wove together for us that I don't want to get dropped out of the conversation. And that you said, you have to train yourself to see the lessons. Because what I don't want people to hear, and you and I have talked about this, I mean, just for hundreds of hours, again, from a peak performance, from a high performance, from having friends who are adventure racers or top triathletes or whatever the case may be, executives, right, running billion-dollar companies, that there's almost a dissociative feature that's not a personality fault, but your ability to compartmentalize the failure to figure out, like we did in the fighter pilot world, what worked and what didn't so that you can move forward, right? Right. And this is where people get stuck because they look at somebody like you and and think, well, she has so much more than I do. She must be stronger minded. She must have a better mindset. She must be more capable or more resourced or more lucky or more something, right? Right. But what you developed over the course of time was the capacity to endure. And I think that when you understand your history, and we've talked about history lots, whether, again, whether it's mountain climbers, fighter pilots, women that have come before us, whatever the case may be, is that I am very clear on my understanding of (laughs) my lack of significance in the world, if you will, and that it's history for me that provides the greatest reminder that if you can focus on your span of control, almost anything is possible. Now, not everything, right? Right. And the people who are out there spewing that, oh, you can do anything, that's snake oil, right? That's crazy. I'm never going to run a four-minute mile. It's never going to happen. I don't care who I train with. But there are a lot of things I could do just like there are a lot of people who are listening right now who, you know, you do, a lot of these are trained, they're skill sets that are attainable if you understand the language that you use um, to yourself, right? And even to each other. Share with me on that then. Yes. Okay. So when you talk about this span of control stuff, I love it so much because I think back to my 2002 Everest expedition, right? So first of all, it took me eight years to get up the guts to try it Mm -hmm. again because I was so gutted from Mm -hmm. that failure. It was such a high profile failure because we were the first American women's Everest expedition and we had all this media coverage and then we didn't make it. And everyone just focused on the fact that we didn't achieve our goal. And then we became the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke. 
I was so scared to go back. And so this like listeners, don't let it take eight years for you to try something again. That's how long it took me. But when you talk of span of control, I wish I had known you. I wish I had known these lessons that you talk about in span of control. I wish I'd known that in 2002, because when I got to the mountain, here's what I was thinking. I'm five foot four. I'm looking at all these big male climbers. They're six foot four. They have longer leg span than I do. I'm going to have to take two steps for every one of theirs. And how about all these people on the mountain that had personal trainers and they hired endurance coaches and they hired medical specialists and they hired Mm. nutritionists and they had all of this one-on-one personal training, all of this stuff to prepare them. And here I am, I was working full time and I had to find a sponsor for the trip. You know, the Ford Motor Company paid for our trip and these people that could just like shell out money or they had a rich spouse that paid for their trip and just all the stress involved. And I just kept thinking, oh, I'm at such a disadvantage. I'm at such a disadvantage because look at what all these other people have and what wasted energy. My Mm. God, what Mm -hmm. negativity. It just, it seeped into my head. And I just kept thinking about the fact that I was at a disadvantage. Well, I couldn't control any of that. You know, I couldn't control the fact that I couldn't afford personal trainers and nutritionists and life coaches and endurance coaches and marathon running coaches and all of this stuff and special diets. And, you know, you, you are you, here's the thing. I mean, and, and that's when I, what I didn't realize and what caused so much stress, I will tell you, I felt stress on almost every day of that expedition in 2002 that changed in 2010 when I went back, Mm. because I realized I don't have to be the best and the fastest and the strongest person on this mountain. And the training that other people have had and the advantages that I see that they have, those don't affect me. Those don't make me climb any worse. Those don't present any additional risk to my situation. No, don't worry. I needed to stop worrying about all the things that other people had that I didn't have and just focus on putting one foot in front of the other because I knew I could always do that. And in 2010, I did make it to the summit of Everest in very similar conditions to what I turned back in in 2002. But the difference was that I just focused on the things that I could control. I just focused on putting one foot in front of the other. And I also knew what it felt like to get the living snot kicked out of me high up on that summit ridge in a storm. And I wasn't afraid of it the second time around. So When you put yourself Mm -hmm. in these situations where it is uncomfortable, these situations that produce stress, that produce anxiety, do not turn and run away. Mm -hmm. Stay in them because those lessons that you learn when you are just walking through hell, those are the lessons that are going to get you to the top of the mountain the next time around. Oh, hard yes on that. And I think that unfortunately, too many people think that, and again, whether, and and there are lots of pluses to social media, but whether it's all the pretty filtered successes that we see on social media, what you don't see is that gritty hard work. And right. people want to, whether it's in building a business, in, in building your physique and building your capacity, or even just from a survival perspective right now, people want to hop over the hard. They want to get to the place where they're not filled with self-doubt. They're not filled with uncertainty. They feel like they've got a really stable mindset. But but from my experience, 
the only way you ever develop more courage and more confidence to ever take that step, that next step, is to get in there and do the work. There's no life hack to that. Like landing a plane on an aircraft carrier. That's probably never not scary, but you feel the fear and you do it anyway. That's right. Well, and it's it's fascinating. There was something, and, and I don't want to gum this up too much. And everybody, you, you, I'm gonna hold on, I gotta reach over. You really have to get Allison's book. It is on the edge, the art of high impact leadership. And yes, she's on the cover. She's tiny. She's a little mountain climber on the big, big mountain, but she's on there. But you wrote something in in your book. Well, there are so many things. I have I've dog-eared and underlined so much in your book. I actually, I give it away to people for graduation gifts and I, Dog I send it out. I know. I'm, I'm, I should be like your sub agent, your sub book agent. But you wrote about something in your book about wanting to get out on the route with people who are better and stronger than you are so that... And again, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but so that you can become better and stronger by observing others who are actually more experienced and more skilled. And yes. what's fascinating to me about that, okay, on the surface, that makes sense. That's logical. But that's going to require you to actually be vulnerable, which nobody wants to feel that, right? Nobody no. wants to feel less than. Nobody wants to feel like they're the back dog in the pack, right? Or that they're, they're never able to keep up. And so it's actually that advice of surrounding yourself, getting on the route with teammates who are better than you, who are stronger than you, who are more, more capable than you, is the exact opposite of what so many people seem to be doing right now. Right. So what would be the advice that you would give to people or the insight into why it matters to actually level up, to put yourself in a space where you're not as capable. Yeah. So when you're planning an expedition, if you're the one planning it, you can plan who's on your team and you can pick people who are about your same skill level. And that way you can all kind of climb at the same pace. Or maybe, you know, you might be a little bit, you're, you're the expedition leader. You might be a little bit faster. You might be a little stronger and you get to that camp first and you're looking back on, yeah, yeah, I was the fastest and I was the strongest. It's not always the fastest and the strongest that get to the top of the mountain. Again, it's the, the mm-hmm. people that are the most relentless. The people that are, here's the mm-hmm. thing, people that are willing to endure pain and the people who just won't quit. That's who gets to the top. Well, you're also going to be in situations where you don't get to pick your team. So you don't get to assess the skill level of the people that you're going to be climbing this mountain with, this mountain, this literal mountain or a figurative mountain, right? Whether you're, it's some team at work, it's a project team, you've got a product to launch, whatever it is that you're doing, you don't, you, you don't often get to pick your team. And you might end up with people who are actually more skilled or more knowledgeable or just flat out better than you are. Well, look, those are the people that you can learn from because we should all be in a state of constant learning. And so for me, you know, then I was on a couple of expeditions where I was like, I didn't, you know, I joined an expedition, I didn't pick the team. And I was like, wow, I'm not as good as the rest of the people. And I wasn't prepared. And I felt like I was holding my team back. That happened to me one time. And at that point, I realized I need to start training with people who are going to dust me 
I need to start training with people who are going to lap me on the mountain, right? And and that's what got me to push myself harder, to realize that I needed to build my skills. I needed to get better. But when you're just around people at your same skill level or maybe a little bit of lesser skill level, you don't push yourself. You don't get better. And so when I'm with people that are better and faster and more skilled and can get up the route a lot more quickly and a lot more easily than I can. That's how I get better. And it doesn't feel good to be at the end of the pack. And it doesn't feel good to be the one that's the most exhausted at the end of the day and feeling like every single muscle and bone in my body is screaming in my face. But that's what I have to do to get better. And eventually it starts to energize you, right? And you start building that momentum and I think it's it's built on that foundation that then you're actually able to start showing up as your more authentic self, right? And even understanding what some of your strengths are. So I remember back in the day, you shared a story about, um, and again, I'm probably going to, so many of my memories have all kind of melded together, but somehow about you were with, you were climbing with a really strong team and you felt like you were lagging just a little bit. But then you discovered at one of your base camps, maybe one of your levels, one of your stops yeah, along the mountain, yeah. that your team actually skewed really tall and that they were struggling to build their snow enclosures because their shovels were really short. Is this ringing a bell or is it yes, just Yes, it is. No, no. This is actually one of my favorite stories to share. So I appreciate you bringing it up. This is a story about my South Pole expedition and the goal, ah, okay. our goal. We were skiing 600 miles from the edge of the Antarctic continent, from the west, this Western Antarctic ice shelf, 600 miles to the South Pole. And I trained as hard as I possibly could because that's just who I am. I, I want to be the MVP of every team I'm on. I, I want to be somebody who is a valuable contributor. I want to be the person who is there for my teammates. I show up prepared because that is just part of my DNA. That's who I am. Um, I want people to know that they can count on me. And so I trained as hard as I could. I did all the research I could do. I got all the gear together that I needed to have. And... I was one of five people on this international polar expedition to the South Pole. And once we hit the ice and started skiing, so you're skiing, you're dragging this 150-pound sled across 600 miles of ice. And by the way, Antarctica is the coldest, windiest place on Earth, right? Coldest temperatures ever recorded were recorded there. But luckily, we were going in the summer, so the average temperature was a balmy minus 50. Mm, so we're mm. skiing across Sounds the ice. Like yeah, I could not keep up with my teammates. And I thought, how can this be? I trained as hard as I possibly could. Nobody could have trained any harder than I could. Nobody could have shown up here more prepared than I am. But I could not keep up with my teammates. So I'm about 5'4", 110 pounds. I've got people on my team who are six foot four, 230 pounds, a foot taller than me and twice my weight. And the law of Physics basically dictates that somebody who is their size can drag a 150-pound sled a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently than somebody who's my size, right? My sled far outweighed me. And the next smallest person on the team had about 50 pounds on me. So I just was too small. My legs were too short, and I could not keep up with my team. And I just thought, I am a liability here. I am the worst 
person on this team. I'm slowing everybody down, but I thought, you know what? I, I can't quit. I can't quit. Why? Because you're in the middle of Antarctica. You literally can't quit. Like you have no choice to quit. It is not an option. You cannot quit. So um, you're stuck there. So, um, but my team leader, who was one of the most incredible leaders I've ever come across on all of my expeditions, this guy named Eric Phillips, he's an Australian polar explorer. He and my teammate, George from Canada, they, in a very sneaky way, they snuck weight out of my sled without really telling me they were doing it. Well, they, I knew they were doing it, but they, they pretended like my sled was overweight. They pretended like I had more weight in my sled than anybody else had in their sleds. So they were like, look, we need to make this weight a little more even. Let's even things out. So they were taking weight out of my sled, but I knew what they were doing because I over heard them scheming about it the night before in their tent. So I knew that they were doing this. And it just meant so much to me that they were willing to help me out as a teammate. They were willing to help me out while allowing me to keep my pride intact. And that act of taking weight out of my sled without scolding me for being slow sent me this message that they wanted me to succeed, that they valued me as a team member. So I immediately started thinking, what am I going to do to pay these guys back? And you, you know, you, you kind of shared part of the story, mm -hmm. which is that these tall guys at the, you know, at the end of the day, after you've been skiing for 15 hours, you are exhausted. You are freezing. You are spent. You feel like you can barely, you know, barely move a finger, but you have to set up camp. You pitch your tent and you have to build a snow barricade around the entire tent to protect it from the elements. Otherwise, your tent could be destroyed by the winds. All your belongings could be blown away. So I noticed these tall guys trying to use this short little snow shovel to build the snow barricade around their tent. Well, they were really wrenching their backs. It was very uncomfortable for them. Well, at five foot four, I am much closer to the ground than they are. So <laughs> I could use that short snow shovel a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently. So from that, from after they took the weight out of my sled, from that point on, every single night we had to build snow barricades. I grabbed that shovel and I shoveled snow around their tents. I built the barricades for them like there was nothing else I would rather be doing. And of course, you know, I don't love shoveling snow, but I did it because I wanted to pay these guys back and because I could. It was a way to play to my strength and my strength of being short, right? And in most situations, being short on an expedition is not an advantage, but in this one circumstance, it certainly was. And it was a great lesson for me in that if we are so focused on comparing ourselves to other people in mm -hmm. areas where they are strong, mm -hmm. we may never uncover the area where we can truly shine, where we can add value. Because I was so concerned with the fact that I couldn't drag that heavy sled that I just assumed that I was a worthless member of the team but I wasn't. I just had to focus on something different. I had to play to my strength instead of trying to be something that I was never going to be. Well, and I love that each one of you, it sounds like on that team in some way, were focused on that greater purpose, right? Focused on that successful outcome that instead of like you were saying, even comparing is everybody even, is everybody exactly the same? Who would have thought 300 miles or 200 miles and, and many freezy days into this that shoveling with a short shovel would have been a potential life-threatening downfall to them? And so within this high-performing team, you all realize the different roles 
that you could play and you all stepped up that may have looked different, right, than at the beginning. And but you were able to adapt and be flexible and stay resilient and stay disciplined. And everybody was still pitching in and doing the work. And I love that because I love the clarity of mission, as well as people understanding that together as a team collectively, you are going to have to adapt to survive. And if we look back on 2020, uh, 2020 was a year for, I think, the majority of people to understand their capacity to adapt and either overcome or not. But how important do you think that is with all of the different leaders and all the different organizations that you've worked with? How important do you think that capacity to be adaptable is? And loaded second half of the question, are we doing enough to develop that within our leaders starting as a foundational element of expectation? So obviously, we've learned over the past 13 months since COVID hit that adaptability is key because whatever plan, I feel like a lot of people focus on putting together a good plan, right? We put so much effort into planning. And when you are in these environments that are constantly shifting and changing, which is, which is of course, what we've had since COVID started, whatever plan you came up with, last year, last month, last week, even this morning. The plan you came up with this morning is outdated. It's already outdated because these environments are constantly shifting and changing. So yes, I think it is so important to plan because planning keeps you organized, keeps you on track, keeps you really motivated. Planning's great, but you cannot be hell-bent on sticking to your plan no matter what. You have to be much more focused on executing based on what is going on at the time. And that's kind of like, you know, look what we did on that South Pole trip, right? We just adapted to what was going on at the time, people's different strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, the plan was everyone was going to carry this amount of food and fuel and supplies. And we had to change that up. You know, for me, it was a great lesson and a leadership lesson in realizing that there are some weaknesses, and this this goes into this planning and adapting, right? This is what I want people to think about. When you think about adapting to this environment, everybody has a weakness, and there are some weaknesses that people will never overcome, regardless of determination or desire. Now, while there are weaknesses that you cannot overcome, you can always compensate not overcome, but compensate. And that's what we have to remember in these times of change, right? Focus on the things you can control. And when something goes wrong, you might not be able to correct it at the time, but you can compensate. Muhammad Ali has one of my favorite quotes. So Muhammad Ali, he struggled in school because he was learning disabled. And he has this quote that I love so much. And he said, you know, I never said I was the smartest. I said I was the greatest. Right. And every single person listening to this podcast is the greatest at something. You are all the greatest at something. So don't worry about being as good as the person next to you. Just be great at what you're great at. Just focus mm -hmm. on your own mm -hmm. strengths. So that has right. to do with, you know, adapting, right? We've got to adapt, right. like forget your plan, just deal with what's going on in front of you. And then are we doing enough? Look, we can always do more, right? There's always room to continue to grow. I will say that what helps it, when you're in a remote extreme environment, first of all, I, I used to talk about being in these remote extreme environments 
and how different they are than everyday business environments. Not anymore. Because now we've all been in a remote extreme environment since COVID started, right? So these are the same. And it's important to remember that emotions are very much heightened in remote extreme environments. So something Mm -hmm. that might Mm -hmm. annoy you just a little bit can seem like the biggest deal in the world in a remote extreme environment. And something that might, you know like make you a little, put a little smile on your face in a normal environment, like in a remote extreme environment can make you incredibly, incredibly happy. So do not discount the power of a few kind words or a kind gesture. The smallest gesture can have a huge impact and a few kind words of support to somebody who is struggling can completely change the outcome of a situation. I would argue could completely change somebody's life. So when you ask about, are we doing enough? You know, we can always do more, but but keep in mind that the smallest of gestures can make the biggest difference in somebody's life. And you got to have a person like you're, I know. And like, I know this is your podcast. You're going to get all embarrassed that I say this, but like, you're my person. You're my person. When the, you know, what hits the fan, when I feel like I am in a dark, dark place and I am losing hope. When I call you, I know you're going to bring me out of that. And so just knowing that, and even, so sometimes I don't even have to call you. I just have to think like, what would Carrie say if I called her right now? I know what she would say. <laughs> she would say this, 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 and this. Okay. Well now I don't even need to call Carrie because I already know this. <laughs> so, um, have your person and also be, be that person, mm-hmm. be that right. person to reach yeah. out to people. Because like I said, even the best, strongest climbers can have a bad day on the mountain And a few kind words can really make a difference in a situation and in somebody's life. I think that's just gold, Allison. And and right now I would, I would agree with you so much because this idea of empathy, right. And not all soft, fluffy butterflies and unicorns and let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. That is not what I mean, No, but it's, it's fascinating. I was having a conversation with one of my clients the other day who is struggling with some team members who just nonstop, they, they feel like they keep telling them the same thing over and over again. And, you know, you start doing a little querying, you know, well, what's their, what's happening at home? What's happening with their kids situation? Well, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is they have to make their commit numbers, you know, which is a little cringy, uh, because, What I think a lot of people are failing to understand right now is that science shows us, all the research shows us, that when people are under extreme amounts of stress and duress, their capacity to retain information falls by over 80%. Yes. 80%. Like, that's a foot stomper. So... You know, one of the things that that we talk about now, I, you know, I share is that how you show up matters. And it doesn't mean you need to be all smiley and dimple face and hashtag blessed on everything, right? Because that's going to drive people crazy. But still, even in these really demanding, overwrought situations, we have to keep the communication channels open. We have to still have an expectation of success. And people will generally rise to that, right. but not an expectation of success at the risk of somebody going over a cliff. The way I, I kind of phrase it, and I'd be, I'd be keen to hear your, your take on this, is that 
A positive attitude does not guarantee your success. However, a negative attitude kills your ability to adapt. And that's critical. So I love that you're bringing up data and science because I think this is so important. I love what you just touched on about people's capacity to retain information and how they perform Mm -hmm. when they're under stress and anxiety. Our brains contain these specialized cells called mirror neurons. These Mm -hmm. mirror neurons actually mimic like the emotions of the, 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 you know, the people around us. So they talk about like enthusiasm is contagious. Like there's actually Mm -hmm. science to that. When you have a positive outlook, that emotion actually spreads to the people around you. And studies have shown that Teams that are happier perform at a higher level, have better health, live longer. You know, so there's a lot of benefits to feeling good, feeling happy. Now, you also brought up something I think that is so important, which is you're joking about hashtag blessed, right? Because half the time it's hashtag this effing sucks, right? That's really (laughs) what the hashtag is. And I think that you can still retain a positive outlook while admitting the situation effing mm-hmm. sucks. So mm-hmm. just as an example, I remember one of the first few mountains that I climbed being with this incredible expedition leader named Vern Tejas. He did the first uh, winter solo of Denali. He is badass. That was probably his nickname in, in elementary school, I'm guessing. But <laughs> anyway, um, I remember being on this expedition on Mount Elbrus, highest peak in Europe with Vern. And he walked, you know, we were all kind of sitting, taking a rest break. And he walked up and down. We're sitting in a line, all the people on the team. And he walked up and down the line. And he's like, how's everyone doing today? And everyone's like, great, great, feeling good, feeling good. Well, I felt like I had a banging headache. I felt like I was going to vomit. My quads were hating me. And I was hating them. So it was mutual. And everyone's like, yeah, feeling good, good, all good, all good. And then Vern, our leader, said, oh, Guess it's only me who feels like my quads are screaming and I have a banging headache and I feel like I'm going to puke. Guess it's just me. Then I was like, oh, me too. And it was such a a great leadership moment about vulnerability, right? Because if everyone's saying, oh, yeah, no, I feel great. I feel great. So I immediately start thinking, what's wrong with me? Why am I hurting? Why do I have the headache? Why am I suffering I must not be cut out for this. I must not be good enough for this. I must not have trained hard enough. I'm just inferior to everybody on this team, right? All this doubt set in and all these voices in my head started telling me that I shouldn't be there, that I didn't have what it takes to get up that mountain. Well, as soon as Vern said, oh, guess it's just me that feels like hell, then I felt like, oh, okay, this is hell, but it's normal. And I'm not the only person feeling like this. So if you right. know that you're not the only one, then that made me feel more confident. Oh, there's nothing wrong with me. Oh, I am not the worst person on this team. Oh, I am not the weakest person on this team. What I'm feeling is normal. And of course, we're in this, this insane environment right now with COVID. So the stress, the anxiety, all of those things, the fear that you're feeling, it is normal. It is okay mm-hmm. to feel mm-hmm. those things, right? You just shouldn't let those things paralyze you. So that's why I remind people, you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can be on a mountain and be hurting and be exhausted and have a, you know, feel the altitude and you can still keep going. You can still put one foot in front of the other. And so for me, that vulnerability from a leader, it was really key. If he had said, yeah, good, I'm feeling awesome. Everyone feels great. Then I thought, oh, I'm the only one. I don't fit in. 
But when I knew other people were struggling too, I realized, all right, this is normal. We're all struggling and we're all going to put one foot in front of the other and we're all going to get to the top of this damn mountain and get back down alive. That's great. And and what's fascinating about that is that what that actually did just in that micro moment, if you will, it not only affirmed your feelings of, okay, this, this is actually really brutal, but it also gave you a sense of certainty, right? And this makes sense if you think about it because our brains are working so hard all the time to find one thing that we can actually control or kind of hold on to during times of uncertainty, during times of crisis or stress or chaos. And that if we can keep our scans moving, if you will, if you go into little pilot speak, if we keep our scans moving, eventually you're going to find something in your environment that you actually can control. And for you, it it flipped the script, right? It flipped your attitude where you're like, okay, now somebody did actually acknowledge that this is not fun. Okay. And now we're going to refocus on our goal. So it's, it's interesting and it's fascinating. This is where I see so many parallels uh, amongst high performers, uh, you know, high achievers that have worked within teams even that, you know, for fighter pilots, we, we work super hard to stay mindful, if you will, during times of stress. And we work to actually properly and safely compartmentalize to set aside those distractions. And no different than you, and, and certainly after your first jaunt up Mount Kilimanjaro that everybody knows doesn't even take any preparation, that was sarcasm, um, <laughs> that this goes, this goes back to your mindset, right? That you start doing the preparation, you start doing the training, and you do actually leave the space for adversity. You expect adversity. You expect extreme wins. You expect this is really going to be hard and that you're going to want to quit. You're going to want to turn around. But you also expect that you're going to thrive. And this takes grit. It takes the willingness to do the hard work and that commitment to constant learning. And and you know what, Allison? I think it's trusting that no matter what, you'll figure it out. That's the thing is you will figure it out and you have to be okay with knowing it's going to be uncomfortable. This is normal. If it's not uncomfortable, if you're not, if you haven't been uncomfortable during the past 13 months, you're not paying attention. Or you're in a dangerous space, right? You, you might be, if, if things have been going along super, just super awesome for you and you're not feeling uncomfortable right now, then, then you might've slipped into complacency. So, which is just as dangerous, right? Right. Complacency is what will kill you, right? Complacency. I always tell people fear is okay. Fear is a normal human emotion. Complacency is what puts you at risk. Complacency will kill you on a mountain. You ha- it's okay. You're going to be scared on the mountain. You cannot be complacent. You sit down, you go to sleep, you decide not to keep going. You're never going to wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Whoa. Well, that's not really going to be ending on a high note, but uh, <laughs> respectful of your time, <laughs> I have just a couple of more questions for you. Um, one thing would be too often I'll hear people say, or I get emails or, or DMs on Instagram or Twitter, and people will say, you know, I'm struggling right now because I don't, I don't have a title or my manager is doing this or my board is not engaging, whatever the case may be. And yet, I think about it and what, what advice would you give people right now who 
Maybe they're just starting out on their journey. Maybe they've been uh, an individual contributor for a little while, or maybe they've been in the C-suite for quite some time and they're exhausted by the nonstop business model disruption. What advice would you give people right now? The advice I would give people, regardless of tenure, you know, whether they're C-suite or middle manager or just starting out, is to take the time to, and this is going to be like not necessarily a business thing, it's going to be a personal thing. Take the time to let people on your team know they are important to you as a person, Mm -hmm. not as a person doing a job function, but make sure you take the time right now to let people know they matter to you as a person. And I will give you an example of what I am talking about here. In 2003, I served as deputy finance director for Arnold Schwarzenegger in his bid to become governor of California. The first week into the into the campaign, there were tons, you know, so many people working on this campaign. There's no way he could have known everybody, but he walked by me in the hallway. And my job was, I was on the fundraising team, right, in campaign finance. He walked by me in the hallway and he stopped me and he said, how's our mountain climber doing today? And he probably didn't even know my name at that point, which was fine, but it was clear to me that he had taken the time to learn about something that was important to me personally. He did not stop me in the hallway and say, hey, how's uh, how's the fundraising looking? Did you, did you get Mark Cuban on the phone? Is he sending us a check? Hey, hi, how's it going? Do we have enough money for our next ad spend? He didn't ask me about what I was doing in the job. He asked me about something that was important to me. That right there, is what created trust and loyalty. It made me want to work even harder for him because I believed he cared about me as a person, not as a job function, but as a person. And so especially, I know with C-suite executives, you can sometimes be so far removed from people, especially now that we're not in an office. Make sure you're checking in with people. Can you imagine if a a very junior employee got a Zoom, a a three-minute Zoom call with the CEO or just the CEO checked in with them? That would make that person's day, week, month, year, maybe career. They're never going to forget that. Small things. Remember, it's the little things that can have the biggest impact. So right now, while we are still in COVID, I know we're starting to come out of it, but we don't know what the hell next month is going to look like. And that's the reality of the situation. Make sure you are checking in with people and make sure they know you care about them as human beings, not as job functions. Brilliant. I call that fearless leadership by walking around. And I could not have said it any better. No, you probably could have. I tend to ramble, but I feel like you probably could have said it better. (laughs) Well, Allison, I'm going to wrap it up with a couple of, I don't know that nonsensical is the word. Let's just go with rapid fire questions Mm -hmm. that might give you, might give people a tiny bit more insight into who you are outside of your professional situation. So these are like Rorschach inkblot questions, all right? Don't overthink it. Just whatever comes to mind, throw out your answer. Okay. Are you game? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Do I have a choice? No. Yeah. (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) All right. First thing, what is your go-to music that you listen to when you're working out? Oh, any country music. Mostly Taylor Swift, Miranda Lambert. Did not see that coming. Okay. Who do you think of as a mentor and what did you need to learn from them? I feel like you're a mentor, but now you're going to get all embarrassed. I'm not going to, I'm going to give you someone else too. 
Eric Phillips, the leader of my Antarctic expedition, and just mm. learning by observing and watching him bring out the best in every member of the team. Love it. What is the biggest misperception of you? Uh, that I'm a strong athlete because I'm not a strong <laughs> athlete. I'm just like a normal person. I'm a normal person with a lot of tenacity and a relentless spirit, but I'm not, I'm not an, an elite athlete. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm sorry. Already first person out of the gate, I'm going to have to push back on that one and wave the BS flag. And I'm going to submit a different answer for you. I would have said that you would have thought because you're an amazing athlete. Oh my gosh. Oh my, oh, come on. I would have thought your answer would have been that people think that you are an extrovert and you are not. God, I am such an, I'm an extreme, extreme introvert to the point where it's painful. Yeah. When I'm at social events, I'm like gritting my teeth and gr- and clenching my fist and like, oh my God, please, please God, let me survive this. Please God, let me survive this. Mount Everest, no problem. Social event, oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to live. Gosh, that's just <laughs> fantastic. Okay, so two last questions. Who plays you in a movie? Daniel Tosh. <laughs> I think he's so funny. Sorry, I like humor. <laughs> I know that okay. you weren't expecting that, were you? No, I think Daniel Tosh no. is so funny. He's one of my favorite comedians. So I say, Hard put no. a wig on Didn't Tosh see- and have him play me in a movie. Did not see that either. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to have my people talk to your people to then talk to his people. We'll see if we can make that happen. And the last and final question I would have for you is, uh, we have $100, a full tank of gas, and the day off. Where are we going? We are going to a dog rescue place that is not far away because we're going to save the $100 and we're going to just spend it on dogs. We're going to spoil them like crazy, um, especially the older ones. That's where we're going to the nearest dog rescue. Ah, it sounds like a perfect day. Well, Allison, I am just beyond thankful. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. I appreciate you. I adore you. You are just one of the best humans I know. If people outside of our friend circle want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? They Well, I have a website, which is just alisonlevine.com. So you can go to my website. I'm trying to get better about social media. I'm not great on it. It's mostly just pictures of my dogs, but you can, you know, usually Twitter is where I am the most or just through my website, send me a note. And I just want to say, I'm so honored to be on this podcast with you. You inspire me, you motivate me, you solve my problems, you help me live life more fearlessly. You really do. Ah, you're great. Thanks, pal. You got it. Her name is Allison Levine, and her book is On the Edge, The Art of High Impact Leadership. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Welcome to My Office. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation today, I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. Lastly, text FEARLESS to 33444 for more information and to join tens of thousands of other fearless leaders from around the world who receive a brief email with my weekly recs on something great to listen to, read, or watch.